Hi, I'm Stephanie Whalen from the Equity Literacy Project at Harper College, and we're working with District 214, District 211, and District 220. And I'm here today with Megan Knight, who's the Director of Academic Programs at District 214. And I think that when we first started talking with Megan, it was back in fall 2018, and you might have been at that time Associate Principal at Elk Grove High School, is that correct? That is correct, yes. Okay. So we wanted to circle back to Megan and you know, share some of what she talked about at our very first in-gathering because some of the stories that she shared were really sort of shocking and some of the information she shared about the inequities that students were facing were things that a lot of us were completely unaware of. So um, I remember that day, a lot of people came together and told some stories that were really touching about things that they viewed. So for example, one principal talked about you know, going to an honors or awards night and how it was just remarkable how you could see it was a predominantly white you know, situation or event. And he just felt so bad for you know, what students of color would see and feel. And I think that that was a touching story because a lot of us hadn't seen it through that lens. But it's also something we were more aware of because we see the demographic data, we see the completion rates, you know, we see a little bit on paper that makes us aware of that. But some of the stories that, that Megan shared were things that we hadn't heard about before. So I think probably a lot has happened since, but maybe Megan, if you could start out by talking to us about, you know, what was your role at that time and what were some of the things that you shared with us? Sure. So um, I am new in my current position. I just started this past July. Prior to uh, coming over here to work at the district office, I was the associate principal for instruction at Elk Grove High School uh, for five years. Um, and as part of my role at Elk Grove, um, you know, overseeing all of instruction, I work directly with staff um, around, you know, really kind of creating, you know, bettering um, the instructional environment and academics for all of our kids. And one of the things that uh, was new to me when I arrived at Elk Grove, which was in the summer of 2014, um, was really uh, where our kids came from. So in a school of about 2,000 students at Elk Grove, 20 to 25% of those kids annually reside in mobile home parks. Um, there are four mobile home parks uh, that are all situated on unincorporated land. And as a result, there's some, there's some unique challenges that um, our students and our families were faced with. So for example, they uh, do not have access to libraries or library cards because they're not considered in district in a library. Um, they have no access to parks and recreation. And in many respects, if you were to drive over to where the parks are predominantly located, they're very much landlocked. Um, another example of that, um, because there are different you know, rules within the context of the parks, our kids didn't have the ability um, to, to have any green space or to be able to go outside and to play. So things that, you know, I'm a mom of three, I look at my own children and their ability to walk right outside and shoot baskets or you know, kick around a soccer ball, um, those things are not, were just not available to our kids at, at Elk Grove. And so those were some of the initial challenges presented. Um, Wi-Fi, so when I first started at Elk Grove, we were just transitioning to being a one-to-one -one school district. And so many of our students, particularly in the mobile home parks, did not have access to, uh, to wireless. And so then you know, a question became, how do we um, fill that void? And very much for during my time at Elk Grove, and I know um, continuing today, that was, that was our affect toward um, our, our kids and their families 
if these things aren't available to them, how can we as a school and a community kind of step in um, and give them those things that they need in order to be successful, um, you know, moving forward? So at that time, I think I remember you talking a little bit about the logistics of the library card Mm -hmm. access too. Is it that the mobile home parks are in an unincorporated area? Yes. So if families wanted to purchase a library card, they could, but did you say it was pretty expensive? Pretty expensive, somewhere between, you know, $250 and $300. So again, for a family who is um, living in poverty, uh, that cost was just not, that was never an option for them. Um, and so, and again, the same thing with Parks and Recreation. Could, could our families uh, participate as, you know, non-residents in a Parks and Rec program outside of their immediate area? Absolutely. But again, they're paying fees and they're paying fees at a higher rate. Um, and so, again, we, we kind of looked at those different pieces and started talking through what could we do, how could we leverage our resources to be able to step in and to, to fill some of those gaps. Um, and that's really what we spent a lot of our time you know, focused on and doing. Okay, and then you also talked about the lack of green space mm-hmm. to play. Mm-hmm. So what was happening when the children were trying to come outside and just play right in their park or mm-hmm. where, their, where their homes were located? Um, you know, that was pretty park dependent, but um, kids would receive tickets um, for, you know, for playing outside. It was, um, you know, they couldn't ride their bikes through the parks if they had bikes. Um, so again, beyond the idea that they didn't have that green space, if they were trying to access some of that space, you know, to play, um, which is just a human childlike thing to do, um, depending on where they were living, uh, they would be, there would be some punitive measures that were taken. I guess I didn't understand that when I told, heard you tell the story before. I thought that there just wasn't anywhere safe to play nearby mm-hmm. um, just because of maybe industrial things around or busy mm-hmm. streets. But you're saying there were some parks they could get to, but they actually weren't supposed to? There's a um, not parks outside of the mobile home parks themselves. There's a little bit of green space in um, several of them. Um, and then there's also really, you know, kind of the streets um, within the park itself. So any kind of land outside of their actual mobile homes, if they were to be, you know, kicking a ball around in front of um, their trailer, for example, they, depending on which park it was, they could get, you know, they could get stopped and ticketed. Um, even if they weren't ticketed, um, that kind of being able, ability to play was not um, allowed in the context of the park itself. Um, they are, like I said, mentioned landlocked, and so to even be able to, um, like the one is located on 83, so to be able to cross 83, which is a major, um, you know, just a major road um, with very heavy traffic, was not not really possible for them. And the other interesting part, from like an EG perspective, is that our our students and families who really were the most vulnerable and needed the school the most were, lo- were living in spaces or are living in spaces that are the furthest from the high school. Um, and, and they would need to be able to drive to the school. It wasn't like they were within walking distance. And so these were all and continue to be, you know, challenges faced by students and families, um, you know, who reside in those spaces. So why would they get a citation potentially for kicking a ball around outside their home? My understanding is that that had to do um, just with the rules of the individual parks. Um, They do employ security. um, 
And so those are things that just were not uh, allowable. And so again, um, it didn't happen every time, but it could happen. And it certainly was meant to be, you know, to dissuade kids from being able to go outside and play. So the, the amount of um, what you can do within the, the small space of a trailer is um, limited in nature. And so again, that really spoke to the need for us to kind of think creatively about how we could help. Yeah, so were those green spaces that you know the belong to the mobile home community and yes. they just didn't feel that it was safe for kids to be playing out there? Yeah, they're just um there's not a ton of green space and then the space that was available was just not meant to be accessible for like the purposes of play from day to day. Okay. That helps me understand a little bit more. So I'm thinking about that as you're describing, you know, the, the families living so far from the school, and I'm thinking about how it seems to be over the years, it's become, you know, if students do want to take part in a sport, sure, there are some costs that mm-hmm. the schools can cover, the park districts can subsidize. There's also sort of the need to be in extra camps and maybe club mm-hmm. or play year-round to even make a team at a big high school, like the high schools in mm-hmm. District 214. Yep. So do you feel that that's another way that that some of those students from lower socioeconomic, you know, families are unable to really part, fully participate? Absolutely. And I think that that's something, again, when I look at my own kids and kind of their experiences that so many of us take for granted, um, you know, I was just at my son's basketball game last night. He plays for the Park District and they have games on Saturdays and um, there is a cost associated with it. Um, But those are things that a lot of our students at EG, um, especially those who came from the mobile home parks, just didn't have access to. They literally couldn't access the park district. And then, you know, there's that financial burden that, um, again, so many of us, I think, take for granted. So, yes, when kids are, you know, coming to us and auditioning or trying out, in many respects, there would be disparities between those who were able to have these experiences growing up as children whether it was you know playing a musical instrument and access to lessons, um, being able to play you know multiple sports over the course of a year, um, to those kids who um, just couldn't participate in more organized sports or activities in the way that some of their peers could. Yeah, and it makes me think of the parental support too. If you have parents that are you know working so hard mm-hmm. or struggling, you know just to keep the lights on or keep food in the house do they have time mm-hmm. to find these programs and then find the scholarships that might be available and then transport mm-hmm. the child to the activity mm-hmm. during the week, on the weekends? So, it, it, you know, it really has changed. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, you could walk to most things because they were right, you know, in your mm-hmm. local school. Mm-hmm. And then parents weren't, you know, tasked with transportation mm-hmm. or paying extra fees mm-hmm. or it was really, really quite different. Mm-hmm. It almost seems like, too, that maybe schools with the lower socioeconomic, um, you know, predominantly lower socioeconomic families, then maybe they even become less competitive because Mm -hmm. sort of like the professionalization of the Mm -hmm. sports and the activities where there's more money, more resources. I I think that that's true. I do. I think that there, I think that that is a reality of, um, of all of it where you just are, you're, you know, your population of kids just do, like literally doesn't have the experiences um, that some of their peers have, have had access to. I also think childcare is a significant issue. What we would see with a lot of our students is that they, 
had to provide childcare for their younger siblings so that their parents could be, you know, could work. So again, there's that time piece um, that became, was an additional, you know, complicating factor. They literally didn't have time in their days or they were working themselves to help support the family and cover the costs of, you know, of living. Um, and when you're doing that, there's, you know, way less capacity to be able to engage, you know, co-curricularly um, at a younger age and then even, you know, at the high school level. So um, definitely uh, challenges for our students, um, definitely challenges for our students. And we see the same thing at the community college. I think we try to make students aware of how important it is to engage in some kind of club or activity or organization at school. But the reality is a lot of them don't have any extra time to spend on campus. Mm -hmm. So even student employment maybe doesn't have enough hours or help them make enough money, but our clubs and organizations are just a luxury. Mm -hmm. And a lot of students don't have that kind of time. Mm -hmm. So even though we tell them how good it would be for them, are we making it, you know, so there's a realistic opportunity? Mm -hmm. So that was the story you told us in fall 2018. And it sounds like you had had a lot of experiences, both as a as an associate principal at Wheeling and at Elk Grove. Um, that story came mostly from Elk Grove. Were there things you saw at Wheeling that were different or the same? Um, you know, during my time at Wheeling, um, and I was there for four years, um, I would say it's the same story, just a different location. Um, you know, we had significant, you know, students and families who struggled in the exact same way that we had students and families who struggled at Elk Grove. Um, the, the significant difference there is that our Wheeling kids all resided in um, either Wheeling or Prospect Heights. So there was an accessibility, more accessibility to, or more access to, again, like Parks and Recreation libraries than perhaps um, the Elk Grove kids who were residing on that unincorporated land, um, but the but the same struggles, you know, nonetheless. So even, you know, if, if you're a student who lives in Prospect Heights and you can access the Prospect Heights Park District, that doesn't necessarily mean that your parents have the funds or the time to be able to um, put you into soccer, uh, you know, to play when you're, when you're a kid. So um, very, very similar across both schools. Okay. So... Once you got into, you know, the groove of understanding, you know, and be getting in touch with what are the needs of these families and these students, what were some of the things that you were able to do, even mm -hmm. though you were limited in, you know, in, in terms of some of the things you couldn't change, but there were some things maybe you could help mm -hmm. with? Um, you know, the work we did uh, as far as community outreach is concerned is something um, that I was and continue to be just super proud of. Um, and it really um, was a, and continues to be a building wide effort. Um, and it's one that I walked into uh, when I got there in 2014, it had already started. So um, a couple of different pieces, um, you know, we really saw these voids and then talked through like, how can we fill them? Um, Ricky Castro, who uh, is just a phenomenal teacher at Elk Grove High School, has led the charge around community outreach, specifically to the mobile home parks. Um, it's his leadership and then the, um, the work of the building that's really allowed for different things to happen. So um, one of the things that we put resources into was the creation of a little lending library that was housed um, or continues to be housed it's, um, essentially in a small trailer um, and we're able to park it at uh, the mobile home park and then um, there through donations and then we put some a little bit of title money toward it. We were able to purchase 
um, books uh, for all ages. Um, so starting with you know early childhood texts and then all the way through books for adults, we purchased them in both English and in Spanish so that there was um, there were their books available to kids. And then um, that was actually done in conjunction with um, the Oasis uh, Mobile Home Park summer camp that Ricky and his team created. Um, and so again, knowing that there's so many students um, and siblings of our students, little kids who had no access to summer camps like most of our children do, um, Ricky and his team you know, created a proposal and said, could we try to do this? Um, and what this is, is a uh, five-day summer camp that occurs in June, and then now a second five-day summer camp that occurs in July. Um, that work is led by uh, students at Elk Grove High School, and they're essentially programming camp for their younger siblings. Um, and so the camps have grown over the course of the past four or five years. Um, the students work in conjunction with uh, teacher leaders to really put the curriculum together. Um, there is a literacy portion, there is a STEM portion, there is an athletics portion. Um, so the kids who attend camp, the, the little kids, um, they take ages five through usually fifth grade, so about 10 or 11. Um, and they come into camp and they work through rotations um, each day in those three areas. And so they get, um, you know, they get the, the experience of a summer camp and it's driven um, by Ricky and his team and it's housed at the Oasis Mobile Home Park. Um, and that's something that I think is super significant too. Um, the Mobile Home Park has been phenomenal in working with the high school to create these kinds of opportunities and to allow them to occur on their property. Um, another piece that we were super proud of, and this again was a community effort and continues to be, we worked in conjunction um, with District 59 um, and the Mobile Home Park to create an event that's um, really a back to school event um, that occurs in August. Um, so both the high school district and uh, the elementary school district are represented, and we put some, you know, we put resources toward that. So um, at the elementary level, they bring backpacks for kids, and parents are able to stop by and to get a backpack. Um, we try to have a lot of different community organizations there um, who are able to, um, you know, engage with families. And again, it's housed right there at the Oasis, which has been phenomenal about allowing us to host events there. Um, and what we found is that if we're able to push into the locations and create opportunities, the families do in fact come, it's right there in their backyard. Um, and so those are a couple of the things that we're just super proud of. Um, from an instructional perspective, we put resources toward, and this has again been years kind of in the making, um, we put resources toward uh, mobile home outreach. And so we have a team of very, very dedicated teachers and some admin who push into the mobile home parks um, usually twice a month on Saturdays and they meet with families. They will go directly to their doors um, or they will kind of set up shop now in um, the office there and, the, and they make phone calls when they get there. We're here, we'd like to talk to you about your son or daughter. Um, they have a very specific sequence of topics um, from month to month depending on what's going on. So in the spring, it's all about registering for the following year and helping families to do that. Um, and they, they get a lot of face time with families um, who otherwise maybe couldn't make it over to the school. And so um, it's, the work is real and um, from my perspective, it is profound and um, 
it's it's one of the things that I'm the most proud of having been a part of. Um, and like I said, I I certainly didn't create it or um, lead it, but I was definitely able to to be there and to help where I could. Um, you know, to to really kind of um, fill in some of the gaps for students and families. So the teachers from the schools actually go. They do. To the site yeah, they do. Either I'm assuming they're either bilingual or they bring yes. an interpreter. Yes, we have um, the majority of the staff who go are bilingual themselves. Um, there have been some staff members who've gone over the years um, who were not, but who but there were people there who could um, translate for them. So how do the families respond and the students respond? Oh, super positively, super positively. I think, you know, um, we have staff members, we have so many staff members who have gone and who have stories about being, you know, invited in and, um, you know, and they have difficult conversations with kids and with families and they talk, you know, to them about grades and attendance and, um, you know, they're really trying to create, to help everybody understand the significance and importance of school and um, and again, to reach out to families who otherwise, um, you know, don't necessarily have the resources to be able to make it over to the school. Um, and that, that piece, that mobile home outreach really has become a staple of, of what goes on in terms of intervention and um, engagement with the community. Yeah, it sounds really exceptional. Mm -hmm. Are there things that when you think about, you know, the work that's still to be done? Mm -hmm. Are there things that stand out as, wow, these are some things that we still really need to address? Mm -hmm. You know, I think um, the library's piece for me is just crazy that we have kids who can go into a library but can't check anything out. Um, there's something about that that just doesn't sit well with me, and I think there's room to go there. Um, I think continued work around, um, you know, creating access and opportunity for kids with regard to co-curriculars. Um, I don't know what the solution to that is. Um, I also think as far as like the camps are concerned, they've been so popular. It would be phenomenal if we could, um, and I know Ricky has, you know, um, he dreams big, which is what we are charged to do. Um, he has ideas about how to really kind of take them to even greater scale. Um, and I, I would love to see that happen. Um, you know, everything is um, a matter of resources and time and so being able to put people in positions to be able to do these things um, is something that I'd like to see us to continue to work on. The other thing that I didn't mention that I think is super powerful is that, um, or maybe I wasn't super clear about, as far as the camps and things are concerned, uh, Ricky actually has a student group that he works with at Elk Grove um, who again are the, so he has kids who are planning for these different events and creating the opportunities for their younger siblings. Um, and so again, that's a piece that I think is um, incredibly powerful um, because they're taking, they're really kind of taking ownership and responsibility for their own community um, and working from within, you know, to create change, um, which is, which is pretty awesome. So what a, what an amazing design to think about the older siblings who are really in touch mm -hmm. with what, you know, would be meaningful or relevant to their younger siblings or relatives or family friends and to be planning the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So when we, I guess the last thing I would want to ask you is, so that's one way that we, you know, as a community, and particularly, I guess I would say you and Ricky and others who have been involved, have found a way to make sure that you're really keenly aware of the student's needs and what would be most helpful or useful, and then making something happen. 
what other ways are we doing that or could we do that? I'm going to back up to just an example that I'll share with you. I remember when I started, it was my second teaching job, um, and it was in the district, and it was at Wheeling. And I remember before the semester started, and it had to be maybe, I don't know, early 2000s, 2001 maybe, um, they took us on a little bus tour around the district. And I remember you know, them showing us some of the neighborhoods and just sort of saying generally, very broadly, like we just want you to see a little bit where your students come from. Mm-hmm. And then we went back to the building and you know, we covered mostly things like enroll, you know, paperwork, you know, em- mm-hmm. employee paperwork and things like that. But we never really at that time discussed the so what. Like we wanted to show you one of the neighborhoods might have been Piper Lane. Sure. That mm-hmm. sounds familiar. Yep. It was a long time ago for me now, but at that time we didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. right? They didn't say like there's a reason we're showing you and mm-hmm. then we want to share some demographic data and we want you to think about your mm-hmm. students and here's some information on how you can be more relevant or responsive to their needs. None of that stuff. I'm I'm imagining that has changed. Mm-hmm. What are we doing now to address that a little bit more intentionally. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the effort was there, right? The, the, the yep. ideal of, hey, know who your students are mm-hmm. is like a first step, but you know, that was some 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I imagine we do more now. I think so. I think I those I know those bus tours still happen. Um, when I was the API at Elk Grove, I helped to plan them. Um, we really did try to get to the so what. And you know, the so what isn't None of this is meant to create, um, you know, excuses or to ask teachers to, you know, to not ask of things of their students, but it really is to create that understanding and ability to be relevant and responsive, um, to use your words, um, like to the needs of kids. So again, I think depending, we have to, we all know our own context, we know where we're from, it's that whole idea of being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and to have, um, not just have empathy, but also really some understanding of the things that I ask of my students in my classroom academically might not always be possible or might have to look a little bit different in terms of you know what the output is because of X, Y, or Z. So even to get to the point where we're having those conversations, I think has been significant. Um, versus like like you said because I, I did those those things myself like when you're look you're you're looking at the paperwork side of things but not really getting to um like the student-centered focus of things um because at the end of the day if a student doesn't have access to the library like another kid or doesn't have access to private lessons um th- there's an impact and so how do we how do we have cognizance of that um, again, not to create it, put us in a situation where we're making any sort of excuses, but just showing some more empathy and some more understanding toward our kids and their circumstances, mm-hmm. because that will play out in your classroom. And I think that's what we always have to remember. Yeah, I think the thing that I feel worried about when I listen to these series of stories is students and families getting the message from some of these barriers that this school, this community, this park district, this library is not for them, mm-hmm. right? It's yes. not set up really at, for everyone in the community. So what do you think we can do in the classroom to make it feel like this is for you? I think your your outreach programs are amazing. The camp is amazing. Mm-hmm. 
really interested in that question that we're t- talking about at Harper now too. What can we do in the classroom where, mm-hmm. you know, we can't get students to all these other things that we'd like them to have, mm-hmm. but we do have them in the classroom. What can we do there? Have you had a chance to think about that or are there other things that are being done? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think, I think if our classrooms can become individual communities themselves, where we're, you know, we have to teach content, um, we have to teach skills, but if we're able to really, I think, model the idea of community within each of our classrooms, I do think that transcends then into the broader you know, the broader world. Um, And I do think it's what creates empathy between and amongst students and uh, because it opens the doors to conversations that maybe didn't used to be had. Um, And that's not a, like there's no Band-Aid that's going to fix all of this. Um, But I think that just having the dialogue and the awareness and doing it in a respectful way is really important and it's going to take a lot of time, but being able to tell the stories and to see the impact and to think creatively, um, if those are things that we can replicate in our classrooms, then I think we're headed in a good direction. All right, well, thank you so much for all that you've shared. I think you've shared a model of really seeing needs and doing something to address them, but then still looking for, you know, how can we do more? Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate that. Absolutely, thank Thank you you so much.